Now, God's ready to use Elijah. That's the reason this man can step out as he does. He's learned he's nothing, and God is everything. And you're going to have one of the most dramatic and wonderful things that's going to take place now is the contest of Elijah with Baal. Elijah went out now to meet Ahab, and he's prepared to meet him. And I'm reading chapter 18, verse 1. It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show thyself unto Ahab, and I'll send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sow of famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave, fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land, to all the fountains of water, to all the brooks, peradventure, we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. So they divided the land between them. And Obadiah was in the way. Behold, Elijah met him. And he knew him and fell on his face and said, Art thou that my Lord Elijah? And he answered, I am. He says, Go tell thy Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. Oh, my, how we need him today. How we need that kind of a voice today, my friend. He's coming after the church leaves. This earth will need a voice, and they're going to have it. Elijah will be back, by the way. Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, What have I sinned that thou wouldst deliver thy servant in the hand of Ahab and slay me? Well, he said, If I went and told him that, Ahab would slay me. And he says, Don't want to do it. And now thou sayest, Go tell thy Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. It shall come to pass, as soon as I am gone from thee, the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whither I know not. You'll disappear. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find thee, he shall slay me. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord for my youth. Was it not told my Lord that I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord? How I hid them? Now will you notice verse 14? And now thou sayest, Go tell thy Lord, Behold, Elijah's here, and he shall slay me. Three times he said this now, Behold, Elijah's here. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, I'll surely show myself unto him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And you know what this man said? He said, Behold, Elijah's here. And that'll be true someday. And it came to pass, verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And Elijah said, I'm not the one that's troubling Israel. You are. You know, the liberal has always blamed the fundamentalists for causing a division in the church. But who really caused it? The church believed something at one time. Who brought the bifurcation in the church? Who was it that led the church away from its foundation? Well, the liberal did. That is the way it happened. But he blames it on the fundamentalists today. I always say concerning my denomination, somebody said, you left your denomination. I said, no, I didn't leave my denomination. They left me. They went off from me. I didn't leave. I still believe what I did at the very beginning. They have departed. 
Now, we are going to see Elijah now speaking to Ahab. And then we'll have the great contest of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And when Elijah's put over against these several hundred prophets, it's about an even match, by the way. Elijah's equal to about that many. You see, it's always the custom of the liberal to blame any trouble in the church on the fundamentalists. He's never been to blame. fact of the matter is, he's lily white. And here, old Ahab blames Elijah for the problem. And Elijah stirred up things. The Word of God will always stir up things. The interesting thing is, rats will always scurry to a dark corner when the light's turned on. Verse 18, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel. Now, this is Elijah speaking. But thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now, that kind of preaching you can't misunderstand. That's not double talk. That is telling it like it is. Verse 19, now therefore send and gather to me all Israel under Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, Now this is going to be a great contest. And the people have assembled there. And actually the people were pretending to worship the living and true God but they also were worshiping Baal. And it's that type of double talk, double life, two-faced method that today, I think, has become so abhorrent and a stench in the nostrils of God. And it's turned off a great many people as far as the church is concerned. If the average unsaved man knew the church as I know it today, I have my doubts whether he'd ever darken the door of the church. There ever is a place where things should be made clear and plain and simple and forthright. It's in the church. And unfortunately, that's where there's more double talk today and more absolutely beating around the bush instead of stating it as it is. Now listen to Elijah, verse 21. How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. And the reason they didn't, their guilt is sin. Then said Elijah unto the people, I even I only remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now the interesting thing is that Elijah had what? I'm pleased to call an Elijah complex, and some of us develop that today. I know many times in my ministry, I feel like, well, I'm the only one left. And then I go around and hear from all over, and I find out that way down yonder up a holler in Tennessee or on the side of a hill in Georgia or down around a lake in Florida, are up in the mountains in California, are stuck way out in the suburban area of Chicago, there's some preacher standing for God and paying a bigger price than I've ever paid. And I just then get rid of my Elijah complex 
And I just thank God today that there are men that are standing for God in these days in which we live. And now I recognize that there's so many of the big names and so many of the men that you hear about that are not actually standing. They are pussyfooting. They are trying to compromise. They're trying to, very candidly, I've heard one man in one section of the country give a message, and in another section of the country, he'd practically reverse the message. There's something wrong when it has to be like that, and you can't give the same message everywhere. Something's wrong with the message, I'm afraid, or something's wrong with the man. Now, Elijah is saying to the people, I'm the only one that's standing for God. Now, he's wrong. There were 7,000 up in the hills hiding out. And I never cared too much for those fellows anyway, but they hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. But Elijah didn't even know about them. He hadn't even got a letter from one of them when he brought gas. It's too bad that they didn't encourage him just a little, but they didn't. Now, Elijah says this, Let them therefore give us two bullocks. Let them choose one bullock for themselves, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, put no fire under, and I'll dress the other bullock and lay it on wood, put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answer it by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it's well spoken. In other words, Elijah said, let's taste of the Lord and see whether he's good or not. If Baal's God, then let's worship him. And if he's not, then let's kick him out. And if the Lord God, the living God, is not God, then we want to know that also. And my friend today, God wants you to know. And if you really mean business with him and you've got any doubts at all, you'll beat your music out if you're sincere. You really want to know because God wants you to know. Faith is no leap in the dark. Faith is resting upon facts and believing those facts, by the way, and trusting them for your salvation. Now notice what's going to take place. And I think this is probably one of the most dramatic pictures that we have in Scripture. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, dress it first, for ye are many, and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal, from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered, and they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry loud, for he's a god. Either he's talking, or he's pursuing, or is in a journey, or peradventure, he sleepeth and must be awake. And they cried aloud, and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets, till the blood gushed out upon them. And this is the little performance that they put on. <laughs> and there sits Elijah. And I think this is one of the dramatic moments in Scripture. Elijah's sitting over there alone. And he watches them at first with a great deal of sarcasm and cynicism. And they begin to call upon Baal. Nothing happens, and then they jump on the altar. That doesn't help. They become fanatics, you see. They've got to have a lot of emotion in it. Maybe one or two of them spoke in tongues. But they really went out for all of that type of thing. And 
Finally, they began to cut themselves. Blood gushed out. Old Elijah said to them, Say, it may be that he's gone on vacation. You have to wait till he comes back. Or maybe he's taking his afternoon siesta, and he's snoozing. And you're going to have to yell louder to wake him up. Oh, Elijah had a big time during that. He's alone over there, and the people are watching all of this. It's Martin Luther, by the way, who's credited with the statement, one with God is a majority. And he knew the accuracy of that statement by experience. And old Elijah knew the truth of this epigrammatic statement. And in this day, there'd been a wholesale departure of the northern kingdom from God. It was almost total apostasy under Ahab and Jezebel. And Elijah is pretty much alone. Now, it's true there was 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal, but they had retreated to the mountains, and none of them stood with Elijah. And he was not aware that they even existed until God had told him. Now, Elijah took a stand against calf worship. He took a stand against new morality and rock music in the church. And he took exception to a great many of the things the church is doing. And he refused to compromise with the prophets of Baal. And when they wrote a new confession of faith and rejected the authority of the Word of God, he was opposed to them. It was Dr. Wilfred Funk who said that the most bitter word in the English language is alone. Elijah stood alone here. He did not voice public opinion, friends. He's no echo. He's no parrot. He's not promoting anyone else. He's no politician. He's more concerned about pleasing God than courting the popularity of the crowd. He sought divine approval rather than public applause. He's not a clown in a public parade. He is a fool for God's sake. His was a solo voice in the wilderness of the world. He carried on an all-out war against Satan and his hosts. He stood alone on Mount Carmel, arrayed against these prophets. He made a dramatic stance for God. He chose Mount Carmel. It's a dramatic spot. I stood there years ago, probably in the exact area where Elijah and the prophets of Baal and it overlooks the Bay of Haifa and the Blue Mediterranean. And it's a long ridge. And way out yonder to the east is Megiddo, Armageddon, the Valley of Esdraelon. And in this dramatic spot, and his lone and majestic figure stood apart. He's detached. And I think he looked bored after a few minutes of it all. And then there was that ironic smile on his face. And then you can hear the acid of sarcasm. He used the rapier of ridicule. He taunted and jeered these prophets. And finally, with wilting scorn, he waved them aside. And may I say to you that this man is now going to have to depend on God. Will you notice what happens then? And it came to pass... Verse 29, when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. 
And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And my friend, that was a dramatic move. The altar of the Lord has been broken. (laughs) And he spent time there cementing it together. What is it that's caused division in this country today? I recognize that there are many explanations that are being offered for it. A departure from God is the thing that is basic to the divisions that are in this nation today. There was a time that there was a measure of unity, and it was a measure of unity about the fact that there is a living God. It's written in our Constitution, and that we were responsible to him, and also that the Bible was an authority. Who divided this country? Those, my friends, that began to cut up the Word of God. That's the thing that's caused division and the hypocrisy of this crowd today to say, let's get together. Get together on what, my friend? You can't get together on nothing. It's like the stories told about a native walking through the jungle of Africa, and he met an elephant. And the elephant said to him, says, where are you going? He says, I'm not going anywhere. And the elephant says, I'm not either. Let's go together. My friend, that's the only way you get together today. According to this crowd, you agree on nothing. And if you all agree on nothing, then you can get together. My friend, you can't get together unless you've got something to gather around that'll hold you together. This man, Elijah, now, he puts the altar of God back together. That's the place of unity And will you notice him? And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name, not Israel and Judah, not Samaria and Jerusalem, but one nation. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order. He cut the bullock in pieces, laid him on the wood, and said, Fill four barrels with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Now, it was a long ways down to the water. As I said a moment ago, I stood there, and I wondered how long it took those that were bringing up the water to get up four barrels of water up the side of that mountain. It was a long route, but this man's in no hurry. Now, we are told he put the wood in order. He cut the bullock in pieces, laid him on the wood, and said, Fill four barrels with water. And now they do that one time. He said, Go on down and do it the second time. Fill it again. He said, Do it the second time. They did it the second time. And that's not enough. He said, Do it the third time. They did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near. And I think if you could have seen him, you'd have seen a wry smile on his face. And you know what the wry smile is? Why did he pour water on that altar? My friend, only God can move. And there's nothing impossible with God. (laughs) And a little water won't keep the fire from falling. And so he didn't mind pouring the water on. He could have had them pouring water for the next 24 hours. 
That wouldn't have kept the fire from falling. But this man now has learned to depend on God. We've seen that. You remember he stood at that little brook and watched it dry up. And he knew he was nothing in the world but a channel through which water could flow. He also looked down in an empty flower barrel and sang the doxology. And God fed him and the widow and her son out of that empty flower barrel for the period of that drought. And then again, he found out he's a dead body. This man's learned that if anything's going to be done, God has to do it. And he just stood up there that day, a wry smile on his face. And I think he had a sense of humor, and I know God has a sense of humor. And I think probably under his breath, he said to the Lord, Lord, if you don't do it, it won't be done. And friends, I wish today we recognize that. If God doesn't do it, it's not going to be done. Listen to him. This is one of the great prayers of the Scripture. It's not long, but it's great. Listen to him. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel. You notice he didn't say Jacob here. Why Israel? Well, Israel is the name that was given to one nation, not to 12 tribes, one nation, one nation under God and of Israel. Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I'm thy servant and that I've done all these things at thy word. And let's be sure, friends, what we're doing is according to the will of God. Don't do something, then ask God to bless it. God doesn't move that way. You have to go his route if you're to get the blessing. And this idea of demanding God to do something, he's demanding a great deal of us. But we are not demanding anything of him. He's no Western Union boy. He'll not come at your command. We're to pray according to his will. Listen to him. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. May I say to you that he's praying for the glory of God. That's what moves the arm of God. And you know what happened? Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he's God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. That was a pretty brutal thing to do, wasn't it? But he sure got rid of the apostasy and the heresy. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of abundance of rain. You see, when the people turn to God, the rain comes and blessing comes. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth, put his face between his knees. He's a great man, let me tell you. And he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. He said, go again seven times. And he went up and finally came back and he says, there's a little cloud out of the sea about the size of a man's hand. And he said, go up and say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down that the rain stop thee not. He said, you better get home or the creek's going to get up and you won't be able to cross it. The rain is coming. And it came to pass in the meanwhile 
that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. He's a great man of God. But we're going to see him start running. Why? Because he's a man of like passions as we are. Now, friends, we come in the 19th chapter to another chapter in the life of Elijah. And it's very difficult to believe that we're now talking about the same man who defied 450 prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. He seems to be a different man now, and there is an explanation for his condition. And I want you to note this now, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Now, that was quite a threatening message she sent to Elijah. And this man now has been before the public defying the false worship in his nation, and it has drained a great deal of his energy and his strength. And now he does a very strange thing, and notice it in verse 3. And when he saw that, well, what's that? Well, that was the message, the word of warning and threatening that had come from Jezebel. And when he saw that, which means he got his eyes off the Lord and on this threatening letter, and just like Simon Peter got his eyes off the Lord and was looking at those waves, he began to sink. Now, this man is not beginning to sink. He's beginning to run. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, if you are acquainted with the map of that land, Beersheba is way down in the south. We would use the commonplace colloquialism of the day and say it was way down in the Tulis. And friends, take it from somebody who's been there, it's still down in the Tulis. It's way down <laughs> on that desert. It was really the jumping-off place. And anyone that got as far as Beersheba could consider themselves safe from a ruler way up in Israel, the northern kingdom. Notice him. He not only came to Beersheba and he left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm not better than my father's. And I don't know whoever told him he was any better than his father's. But nevertheless, his father's had died, and he said, Now he wants to die. Now, you must admit that that's quite a change from the man on the top of Mount Carmel 
defying the prophets of Baal, and the man now hiding under a juniper tree way down in the south, the other end of that land, hiding from a woman, from Jezebel. Ahab didn't make any effort to destroy him or to arrest him at all. But I tell you, Jezebel hated him, and she is not going to let him get by with it if she can do anything for him at all. Now, I think that we need to note that this man had gone through that traumatic experience when he stood before that altar and prayed God, and the fire from heaven fell. And then he put to death the prophets of Baal. Then there was the great rainstorm that came, and it was a victory for Elijah. And so Ahab went back and reported to Jezebel, and she sent him a telegram and said, I want you to know that I intend to get you. And she is the most wicked woman in the Bible. And Elijah got his eyes off the Lord, and he ran to what was the end of the world in that day. And when he got to Beersheba, he just kept going, and he felt he was out of reach. And Frankly, when I see him crawl up and underneath that juniper tree, I'm ashamed of him. (laughs) He couldn't sing down in the dumps, I'll never go. That's where the devil keeps me low. I'm sure that some of us very pious fundamentalists, we would have given him a very fine little lecture on to be cheerful and optimistic and smile that Romans 8.28 was still in the Bible. But may I say to you, I don't think you could get Elijah to smile under that juniper tree. I heard of an English divine that preached a sermon some time ago on the subject, brief, bright, and brotherly. (laughs) Elijah didn't feel that way underneath that juniper tree. Now, you can criticize him, you can find fault with him, you can denounce him, and you can say he's not trusting God as he should and that he's a disgrace to the Lord, and you can throw a brick at him, and you can say, is this the man that defied the prophets of Baal? Is this the man that said, if the Lord be God, follow him? What's happened to our prophet? What disease has smitten him? What's the diagnosis of his disease? Could you give us the etiology of it? Well, let me suggest to you here several things. There is here a physical cause. He's overworked, he's overwrought, and he's overworried. He was physically exhausted. I think he could have dropped in his tracks after that experience on Mount Carmel. He was worn out with this arduous task of standing for God. The sin of the ministry is not finances, friends. Great many people think that it is. I think there are few that run a religious racket. I know several, I'm confident, are doing that. But the average preachers, actually, that's not the problem. When I was ordained, they warned me of three sins of the ministry, pride and of being boresome and laziness. And I'm confident some folk are never going to get under a juniper tree. And you know why? They're too lazy. Why, there were 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal, And they're not under a juniper tree. No, but they're hiding up yonder in a cave somewhere. And they'll never be able to stand on the lofty heights of Mount Carmel 
and they'll never be able to see the fire come down from heaven. This man Elijah stood alone. He was a prodigal of his own physical strength. And some dear saint, I'm sure, whispered in his ear, you're doing too much. Take it easy. Elijah would never have run from Jezebel. He hadn't been exhausted. And I think we need today men that are willing to work for God. I hear a great deal today of folk being dedicated to God, and they're as lazy and careless in the Lord's work as they possibly can be. Now, will you notice there's something else here? There is a psychological factor. This is the day of hypertension, frustrations, sterility, frigidity, nervous debilitation, disappointment, discouragement, despondency, letdown, rundown, and a breakdown. And perhaps you misunderstood about this man. He was rough and rugged. He was a blood and thunder man. He had a rugged exterior. He concealed a sensitive soul. He was ruled by his emotions, though, and he could go from that of elation to that of dejection. He possessed the finer sensibilities, I think, an artistic taste, an aesthetic nature. Those who do things are emotional. They suffer maybe from manic depressive psychosis, as the psychologist says. A woman is probably the most delicate of God's creatures. And may I say to you that she is emotional, but she has a finer sensibility than a man. Elijah had that kind of a nature. You ever notice that God put around that tabernacle with all its beauty and wealth and wonderful workmanship? Uh, badger skin, that was the exterior. The exterior of this man here is a man that was like that. And that's Elijah for you. And he's crying out now to God to take his life. I tell you, he's in a bad condition. Now notice, as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold then, an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. The angel of the Lord came unto him a second time, and touched him, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. So this man now needed rest, and God knew that. And the Lord put him to sleep. Didn't give him a sleeping pill. God put him to sleep. And he slept like a baby. And then he needed some good food. I don't think he'd been eating regularly. And now there was there bread that was being cooked. You know who I think cooked that? The same one that prepared that breakfast on the shore of Galilee that morning after the resurrection. That's the one. And our Lord comforted him, you see. And then he put him to sleep again, said, you need plenty of sleep. And then he fed him again, and then he told him something that Elijah was beginning, and he'd learned it, and that is, the journey is too great for you. My friend, I don't know who you are today listening in, but it may be a very happy day for you, and you may think you're sufficient, for the battle of life, but I want to say this to you, the journey's too great for you through life. 
You're going to need a Savior. You're going to need a helper. Even this man Elijah, as rugged as he was, did that. And so he arose, verse 8 now, and he did eat and drink, and he went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights under Horeb, the mount of God. He came thither into a cave, lodged there. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What doest thou here, Elijah? You see, Elijah got the strength not to return, but to run. And he kept running. And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it. And now the Lord's dealing with him, you see. He's overwrought, <laughs> and he needs real psychological help. Somebody said, you believe in going to a psychiatrist? I think there are times when you need to go. But most of us today could solve our problems if we crawled on the couch of the Lord Jesus and we told him everything. You wouldn't have to be running around today telling everybody else about your troubles and problems if you just talk it over with him. And we ought to tell him everything. Now, this man, he's stating a fact, but you can see he's tense. I'm the only one. And he said, now verse 11, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire... What was it? Well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, Elijah loved these things. Oh, did he love a good windstorm. He liked to see the rocks rent and the mountains rent. He's that kind of a man, you see. May I say to you, he goes for that type of thing. And then there's the earthquake. He liked earthquakes, by the way. He liked Southern California. And after the earthquake, there's a fire. And after all, he's the man brought fire down from heaven. And he liked that, but wait just a minute. God wasn't in any of those. After the fire, a still, small voice. And if there's one thing that this man Elijah did not like, it was a still, small voice. He never had a still, small voice. But he had to learn that this is the way God moves. And how wonderful it is, as we see here God moving in this way. And he's teaching this man a great lesson. Elijah, the battle actually is not won on the top of Mount Carmel by the fire coming down out of heaven. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. God moves in a quiet way, and God uses little things to accomplish his purpose. Someone has said, Great doors are swung on little hinges. God uses those things to open mighty doors. And that's what this man had to learn. And then when Elijah heard that, it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out, stood in the entering of the cave, and behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. And he told what he had done. And I only am left, 
and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. That is, go back north where you came from. When thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. God says, I have work for you to do. I'll take care of you. And Jehu, the son of Nimshah, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, you'll anoint him to be prophet in thy room. I have a successor. It shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazel shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. God has always had a remnant, friends. He has a remnant today. And this was the remnant. Now, I have been very unkind to them. They were standing for God. They had not bowed the knee to Baal. But they were not out in the open like Elijah was. They were the silent ones. I guess they had prayed for Elijah and all of that. And we find here now that God is going now to put this man aside, and we find that he's going to raise up Elisha to take his place. Now we are told, so he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father, my mother, then I'll follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? He returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen, slew them, and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Now he's Elijah's pupil. He's to take his place. Now in chapter 20, we have here Ahab's campaign against Syria, against Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. And God is permitting the enemy now to come in from the outside. Up to this time, God had not permitted it at all. We are told, though, that God promised a victory even to Ahab. Verse 13, Behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I'll deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus saith the Lord, even by the young men of the princes of the provinces. Then he said, Who shall order the battle? And he answered, Thou. Now, God gave this man an opportunity. We hear a great deal about lost opportunities and about opportunity knocking only once at the door of every man. I think opportunity stands at the door and just keeps knocking. But now Ahab is promised a victory, and God gives him a great victory over the Syrians. But the prophet, verse 22, came to the king of Israel and said unto him, Go strengthen thyself, and mark, and see what thou doest. For at the return of the year, the king of Syria is going to come against thee. I've given you a victory now, but you be careful. You don't return back to the worship of Baal. I've demonstrated that I'm your God, the living God. And we are told that the king of Syria coming, and this is a very vivid picture in verse 27, children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids, but the Syrians filled the country. 
And we find here that, again, he's given a victory, but he made the mistake of sparing Ben-Hadad. You see, he was told that he's to eliminate the enemy. There is no compromise with sin, friends. God never permits that. And that's exactly, of course, what this man Ahab does. Why is it today that judges let off criminals? It's because they've got a guilt complex themselves, my friend. They feel guilty themselves, and they know they are sinners. And it's almost like pointing the finger at themselves. And therefore, with that guilt complex, it's very hard for a sinner to judge another man. Ahab couldn't go through with it. We have here in chapter 21 the very familiar story in the life of Ahab and Jezebel, and it concerns Naboth's vineyard. And I'm going to hit, though, the high points of that, because it actually is the next chapter that we want to center today. It came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Now, I was in Samaria, and I must confess it's the most beautiful spot, as far as I can tell, in that land. You can stand on the hill of Samaria where Ahab and Jezebel's palace was. Omri built it. And you can see Jerusalem to the south. You can see the valley of Esdraelon, see a Galilee in the north. You can see the Jordan River on the east and the Mediterranean Sea on the west. And it is a beautiful view on all four sides. There are not many places that are like that. And if I was living in that land, that's where I'd like to have a home, would be right there. Now, Naboth had a vineyard. I looked all around there. I wondered what side it was on, but it was nearby. And Ahab, having that lovely palace, lovely place, you'd think that would be enough. But no, he wants that vineyard. And this man, Naboth, does not want to sell it for the very simple reason. It was the patrimony. It was what God had given to his ancestors, and it had been passed down from father to son. And now the thing has come that here's a king that wants it. Well, he was a pretty brave man to turn him down. And so he couldn't buy it. And so he went home and pouted like a little boy. Verse 4, Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he'd said, I'll not give thee the inheritance of my father's. And he laid him down upon his bed, turned away his face, and would eat no bread. <laughs> Pouting little boy. Ahab, wicked as he is, he's a spoiled brat. And he won't eat now because he can't have what he wants. And he can't have this vineyard. Well, he has a wife there that has some ideas, I can assure you. And she's going to work out something that will enable him to get it. And so she tells him now, verse 5, But Jezebel his wife came to him and said to him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? And he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, 
Give me thy vineyard for money, or else if it please thee, I'll give thee another vineyard for it. He answered, I'll not give thee my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Aren't you a king? Why didn't you tell him you wanted it and that you're going to get it? Arise and eat bread and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. That's a wife for you, friends. She is absolutely masculine in her manner, dominant and domineering woman. I'd have been afraid of her myself. I must confess, she's a wicked, wicked woman. And so in this particular instance, she's going to get it. Well, you know the story. I'm not going to read the detail. What happened was that she formed a very nice little plot, and they had a nice little gathering, and Jezebel arranged to have two men, children of Belial, And these men witnessed against Naboth and said that he blasphemed God and the king. And they carried him out of the city and stoned him with stones and he died. And you can't think of anything more unjust than this. But this happens many times and has happened many times in the history of the world. Of the man on top who has everything taking advantage of the little man. And now Naboth is stoned to death. And you'd say, well, Ahab got by with it, my friend. You don't get by with sin. I don't care who you are. The day will come when you're going to have to settle up. And the day came when he's going to have to settle up. And so Jezebel came in and announced to her husband Ahab that he's dead and that you can have the vineyard. And Ahab, verse 16, rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Well, he's got by with it, has he? No, God has a man there. Thank God that there's a man around that'll declare the word of God. Verse 17, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Rise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he is gone down to possess it. Thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. Remember, God has said, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And whether he's God's man or Satan's man, if they were here today, they'd tell you that this is an immutable law of God that you can't change. Old Jacob found out it was true. Pharaoh of Egypt, who killed the little boys in Israel, thought he got by with it. But one day he went in and his firstborn was dead. David committed an awful sin. He didn't get by with it, friends. The same thing he did came to him. Saul of Tarsus, he was the one that was the leader in the stoning of Stephen. But there came a day over yonder in Asia Minor, Antioch of Pisidia, in that area, why this man was stoned and left for dead because he was dead. God raised him from the dead. May I say that here is the judgment that is pronounced on these two. 
And we're told in verse 22, we are given here the judgment upon the line of Ahab. God says, And I will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah, for the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. God says, I'm removing your house. Your line will not reign here. Now he's not through. And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Now both of these come to pass very definitely. Now we come to chapter 22 and see the fulfillment of it. And here's another unusual chapter in the Word of God. And we find now, we've been following the king in the north, that down in the south there's come to the throne, as we saw, but never followed his life, was Jehoshaphat. He was a good king. But now he's made an alliance up here with Ahab. Notice this, verse 1, chapter 22 of 1 Kings. They continued three years without war between Syria and Israel. came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now, I thought they were having civil war. What's happened? That a good king like Jehoshaphat would be an ally of a man as wicked as Ahab. What's the explanation of him fraternizing with the natural enemy? It's an abnormal alliance. It was an unnatural confederacy. Now, seems strange, but we'll find out later on that Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, had married Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And this is the case again of the sons of God marrying the daughters of man. And when the believer and the unbeliever gets married, you can always be sure that the believer's going to have trouble with his father-in-law. When you marry a child of the devil, my friend, the father-in-law sees that you have trouble. Now we read here, The king of Israel said to his servants, Know ye that Ramoth Gilead is ours, and we be still, and take it not out of the hand of king of Syria. Now, the fact of the matter is, this had happened that they had lost Gilead. But the best thing to do is just leave it as the status quo. Just leave it as it is. Verse 4, And he said unto Jehoshaphat, Wilt thou go with me to battle to Ramoth Gilead? And this man Jehoshaphat should have stayed out of it. He should have followed the advice that was given to him by the prophet. But Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, and my horses as thy horses. Too bad, may I say, the devil's man and God's man making an alliance like this. And this is not Jehoshaphat's fight anyway. Gilead didn't belong to him. Belonged to Ahab, and it's Ahab's quarrel, not his. He should have stayed out of it. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Now, Jehoshaphat's God's man. He wants to know what the will of God is. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it to the hand of the king. Jehoshaphat, he wants to know the mind of the Lord, and he suspects 
that they're not getting it through these false prophets. He had a real spiritual discernment. And he asks now the question, Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire him? And Ahab now introduces the after-dinner speaker, and he introduces him in a most unusual way. He says, I hate him. Listen to this. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. You really don't mean that you hate a man of God. Someone has said that a man is not really known by his friends. He is known really by his enemies. And he said that every man ought to make sure that he has the right enemies. The best compliment that could be paid to Micaiah was for Ahab to say, I hate him. And I have always felt that in the Lord's work. And very candidly, I've always prided myself that I have the right enemies. I like the enemies I have. And I'll tell you why. Because they are not for the Word of God. I've discovered that. And it's well to have the right enemies as well as to have the right friends. And I can truthfully say today, I thank God for my friends. I can also say, I thank God for my enemies. Ahab says, I hate him, and Micaiah had the right enemy. Now, in a day of compromise and peace at any price, this today is the passion of politics and religion, is compromise. And I heard a man introduced. In fact, he was a preacher. And the thing that the toastmaster said about him, he doesn't have an enemy. God have mercy on him. And you only had to listen to him three minutes till you could see why. He's a Mr. Milk Toast. And doesn't stand for anything. Now, Micaiah actually was the best friend Ahab ever had. Well, Paul, you remember, could say in Galatians 4, 16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And so Micaiah's brought in. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Hasten hither Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And they brought him in. After all, he was very close at hand. Ahab kept him in prison. And so he's brought in, and here's another one of these great dramatic scenes. Verse 10, And the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, sat each on his throne, having put on their robes in a void place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets prophesied before them. All these 400 prophets are running around all over the place saying, Oh, you to go up against it. And one of them was very dramatic, by the way. He was quite an actor. Verse 11, Zedekiah, the son of Kenanah, made him horns of iron. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, With these shalt thou push the Syrians until thou have consumed them. He's running around with these horns, iron horns, pushing at everybody and saying, This is the way you're going to do it. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the king's hand. Now, this is the scene. The two kings on the throne, the prophets running around to say, Go up and fight. You'll win. Verse 13, And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spake unto him, saying, He said, I'd just like to put a bug in your ear. 
said, all the prophets down there prophesying something good. That is, they're saying to the king, go up. That's what he wants to hear. You ought to join with them, and then you'd get in favor again. He says, behold, now the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. Here's a chance for you, Micaiah. And this guard, I suppose, thought he was helping him. And Micaiah said, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. So he came to the king, and the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? And he answered him, now notice this, this is not only dramatic, it's humorous. Micaiah said to this guard, says, whatever the Lord tells me to say, that's what I'm going to say. I'll tell it like it is. And he comes in, he sizes up the situation. The two kings on the throne, all these false prophets, prophets of Baal running around saying something very nice, you know. And they had read the book, How to Make Friends and Influence People. Micaiah hadn't read the book. And he hadn't read the book, The Power of Positive Thinking. <laughs> He's pretty negative. And there's a lot of power in negative thinking also, friends. We need a little of that today. Now, will you notice... And Micaiah said, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith to me, I'm going to say that. Now listen to what he says to the kings. He sees this. To him, it's a humorous scene. So he just joins in for fun. And I think he's as sarcastic as any man could be, just as sarcastic as Elijah could be. They were cut out of the same piece of cloth, by the way. Go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. The king saw he was being ridiculed. The king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee that thou tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? I know you're kidding me. You've never been on the side of the false prophets. And now will you notice, verse 17, Now this man becomes serious. He becomes serious and solemn. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered upon the hills, as sheep that have not a shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. Then Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, sitting on the throne next to him, he says, I told you so, verse 18. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell thee that he would prophesy no good concerning me but evil? Then Micaiah said, I'm not through. I have something else to say to you that you ought to hear. And he gives a parable, and this is a parable that you could say it's the reducto ad absurdum. It's a preposterous parable, and it's a parable by contrast. And you won't find parables like this until you come to our Lord's teaching as recorded by Luke, like the parable of the unjust judge. God's not an unjust judge. Now, will you notice what he says here? This is tremendous. Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. This is verse 19. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said, On this manner, another said, On another manner. Isn't that ridiculous? Can you imagine God calling a meeting of the board of directors or the church board to ask them what he's to do in a case like this? God already knows what he's going to do, and he doesn't need the advice. But this is ridiculous. And there came forth a spirit, and one little spirit came up, 
and stood before the Lord and said, I'll persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, wherewith? Imagine this. God says, my, you smart little fella. I wish I'd thought of it. And he said, I'll go forth, and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. And he went down, and notice this. This is the nicest way that you can call a bunch of prophets a bunch of liars. He said, I'll go down and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all those prophets. And that's what they've told you. Now, listen to this. But Zedekiah, the son of Kinena, went near and smote Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way went the Spirit of the Lord for me to speak unto thee? Micaiah said, Behold, thou shalt see in the day when thou shalt go into an inner chamber to hide thyself. And the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah, carry him back unto Ammon the governor of the city, and to Joash the king's son, and say, Thus saith the king, Put this fellow in the prison. Feed him with bread of affliction, with water of affliction, until I come in peace. Micaiah has the last word. He says to him, If thou return it all in peace, the Lord hath not spoken by me. And he says to Ahab, Ahab, you're not coming back. And if you come back, God hasn't spoken by me. And he says, in view of the fact you won't be coming back, I want the people to witness, hearken, O people, every one of you, and you'll know that what I've spoken is true. Well, they go to battle. They listen to the false prophets. And what happens? Well, Israel loses the battle. Poor Jehoshaphat had to flee for his life because he was the only one had on the king's uniform. This fellow Ahab was a deceiver all the way through. He took off his royal robes and dressed like an ordinary soldier and riding along in his chariot. And he's attempting to flee. The battle seems to be over. Although we would say using the common parlance of the street that Olahab set Jehoshaphat up as a clay pigeon to be slain in the battle. We are told in verse 30 of chapter 22 of 1 Kings, And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and enter into the battle, but put thou on thy robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. But the king of Syria commanded his thirty and two captains that had rule over his chariots, saying, Fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king of Israel. Well, you see, the only man in the battle that has on king's robes is Jehoshaphat, and he's a marked man. Because Ahab has now disguised himself and just made the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, made him the real target when actually it was not his fight at all. And he almost didn't come out of the battle. We are told, verse 32, it came to pass when the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat that they said, surely it's the king of Israel. Well, he wasn't. He's the king of Judah. And they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. came to pass when the captains of the chariots perceived that it was not the king of Israel, that they turned back from pursuing him. They were after the wrong man. And poor Jehoshaphat almost lost his life in the battle through the deception of Ahab. Ahab actually was not slain by a soldier that aimed at him. The king was not a target, and the soldier did not shoot at Ahab. Yet that arrow found him. 
This, by the way, is the first guided missile. Verse 34, And a certain man drew a bow at a venture. One of the ordinary soldiers had one arrow left in his quiver. He pulls it out, puts it in the bow, turns it, lets it go. He doesn't know where it's going. It would have to be recorded that Ahab's death could be labeled accidental. But in God's record, it is providential. And that arrow was aimed. And you know, God still uses a very crude form of weapon. He's still back in the bow and arrow days. Over in Psalm 64, verse 7, is a most interesting verse. Listen to this. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly shall they be wounded. There are those today that think that they've escaped the hand of God. But I want to tell you, God's got an arrow with your name on it. It'll find you one of these days, no matter how much you try to deceive, no matter how much you try to cover up, why, that arrow will find you. And that's what happened. And the thing came to pass through Elijah and predicted that this man would die and his blood would be licked up by the dogs in the same place that Naboth had died. And Of course, old Ahab tried to stay away from that place, but here he's wounded, and he dies, and his chariot's brought there to Naboth's vineyard, and it's washed to get the blood out. The dogs are right there to lick it up. The prophecy was literally fulfilled. Now, this man, Jehoshaphat, made a big mistake. We are told, verse 40, So Ahab slept with his fathers, Ahaziah's son reigned in his stead. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. And we're told here, verse 43, he walked in all the ways of Asa's father. He turned not aside from it, doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for the people offered and burnt incense yet in the high places. And that was a token of compromise that God could not, nor did he bless in the life of this man. It is quite obvious here that this man is a compromiser, and yet he is rated a good king because he did serve God in his own personal life. And we're told, verse 44, and Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. Now, that was a mistake also. He should not have done that. When you get over to Second Chronicles, and I must turn there to pick up a verse in Second Chronicles chapter 19, verse 2, we are told that Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him. He went out to meet Jehoshaphat when he came back from his visit with Ahab. And he said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord, therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, and that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land, and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. Now, the groves were a place of great immorality, but the high places were not taken away where there was offered sacrifices to Baal. He had compromised. Now, we're told in verse 49... Then said Ahaziah the son of Ahab unto Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with thy servants in the ships. 
Now the son of Ahab that comes to the throne, why, he wants Jehoshaphat to make a compromise with him, and they go now on a peaceful mission. But Jehoshaphat's learned his lesson. He says, no, no thank you. I don't care for this kind of an arrangement at all. Now we're told Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers. He's buried with his fathers in the city of David. His father, Jehoram, his son, reigned in his stead. Now Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, he began to reign over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned two years over Israel. Verse 52, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother. That's Ahab and Jezebel. And in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. For he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel, according to all that his father had done. 